Perfect's Universe, Episode 8, Joe R. Frenzy. Real one. Our highly skilled team are focused on bringing you the optimal experience. experience. So many answers we may never know. Too many questions, get on with the show. No time for the chorus, only this bus. It's true, it's you. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Welcome to voice print identification. When you see the red light go on, would you please state in the following order. Your destination, your nationality, and your full name. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Thank you. Quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that quite a serious epidemic has broken out into claims. I know there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security. Something apparently of an unknown origin. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. This is in fact what has happened. I'm ready now to discuss this. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides, but unfortunately we didn't find anything else. It hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces, it seems to have been deliberately buried. Four million-year-old black monolith has remained completely inert, except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery One left on its half-billion-mile voyage to Jupiter. The sixth member of the Discovery crew was the HAL-9000 computer. Everything is going extremely well. One gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. Well, hell, I'm dead about anything wrong. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. But Dave, I can't put my finger on it, but I said something strange about it. Just a moment. Just a moment. You know what happened? I'm sorry, Dave. I don't have enough information. I made radio contact with him yet. The radio is still dead. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of Kubrick's Universe. At the boards is Mr. Fantabulistic, none other than Stephen Rigg himself. I am your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong. So listen, guys, we got a really cool guest for you today. I speak, of course, of Joe R. Frenzy. Now, Joe has been writing professionally since 1981. He's a lifelong resident of Easton, Pennsylvania, and has covered it all through his monthly film column called The Art of Cinema. Uh, Joe's column has appeared uh, since 1998 in the Easton Irregular, which is the Lehigh Valley's premier arts publication. 
He published a collection of these volumes in a 2013 book called Movies on My Mind, which covers Metropolis to Black Swan, Stanley Kubrick to David Fincher, and pretty much everything in between. He's also written an illustrated children's book series in collaboration with former Disney artist Kati Kilbanks titled Princess Bria of Picolot. But it's his latest book that we want to talk to Joe about. Now, Joe originally wrote about 2001, A Space Odyssey, in April 1998 on the film's 30th anniversary with a piece entitled Beyond the Three-Act Play. This was only the second column he had written on the film, but it did allow him to expand and become more ambitious in his film writing. Now on the film's 50th anniversary, Joe is here to talk with us about his first book on the subject, entitled Kubrick's Monolith, The Art and Mystery of 2001, A Space Odyssey. In it, Joe re-examines the film in a post-millennial context. It's a fascinating read. We're real fortunate to have you here, man. So, uh, hey, Joe, thanks for being on the show. I'm good. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, can you tell us how you first got into writing back in the early 80s? Uh, yeah, I, I was always interested in writing from the time I was a teenager. I wrote little short stories and things like that. You know, growing up, I took a creative writing course in high school, and when I got out of high school, uh, I was interested in writing and filmmaking. Uh, I started making little movies on my own, uh, you know, Super 8 millimeter film uh, back in the 70s. And um, so anyway, I was always like pursuing creative endeavors, and it was really, you know, writing short stories, and I started writing a science fiction novel at that point, and also, you know, working on little films. So that's where it all began for me. And uh, over a course of time, I kind of winded it down to the point where I, I wanted to write about film. Uh, initially, I started doing prose, uh, science fiction stuff, you know, being inspired by 2001. But then I got interested in making films and then writing about film. You know, that, that became kind of my focus. And uh, from the late 70s on, I was doing all kinds of little bits of writing here and there and uh, sold my first story. 1980-81 uh, to a magazine called Illusions, which was a, I wrote an article about the making of a spacesuit uh, based on a 2001 spacesuit, which some friends and I uh, had made uh, back yeah. in the 70s. And I actually took that to a, a Star Trek convention uh, back in 77. Nice. But anyway, that's, that's where the writing began. And uh, just over time, I just kept writing and writing, and I found little outlets where I could you know, either uh, have my work shown or I could actually get paid for it. And uh, but things didn't really take off in a big way for me as a writer until I hooked up with uh, the East and a regular and got the film column. Now, yeah, you worked with uh, for many years, I believe, with uh, Carol Hefley on the East and a regular. Can you tell us what? Yeah, she was there? the she was the publisher and editor of of that uh, that paper, and uh, I met her. Um, I had read the Irregular a couple times prior to that. It's, it's like a local. Um, arts newspaper in my town mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed it. And then I found out they were looking for a, a film writer. They wanted to do a film column and a friend of mine who's an artist had done an art column, you know, where he would uh, interview artists or review shows and things like that. And mm -hmm. when he found out that she was looking for someone to write a film column, he said, I, I have just the guy for you. And he introduced me to her and then it took off from there. And uh, wow, and you uh, have been with the uh, 
Easton a regular ever since, or did you? Uh... Uh, I I retired a couple of years ago after writing for 18 years for them, wow. uh, doing a monthly column. And originally, it's funny when I got the the job. I mean, not that it paid much or anything like that. It was just a local arts paper. But um, basically, I thought it would last a year or so. I was I thought, yeah. oh God, I got a gig for a year. That'll be nice. <laughs> and then 18 years later, I was still doing it. But you know, at that point, I decided to uh, you know give it up because I kind of had run out of steam on it. And plus, I was, you know, heavily involved with the editing and uh, expansion of my uh, Kubrick's Monolith book with right. the McFarland Press. Right. So I, I basically had, I didn't really have the time to do both things, at least not do them to the extent that I wanted to. Yeah, well, I want to get to the book, um, but you brought up the spacesuit. And I, you know, I believe you wrote an article uh, for the special effects mag Illusions, and we recently saw the picture of you. In Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, you, you shared that awesome picture of you wearing the 2001 replica spacesuit. Um, right. I mean, te tell us about that. What was the uh, motivation behind getting such incredible detail going on with that? Uh, I had gone to a couple of Star Trek conventions back in the 70s. Uh -huh. And uh, in uh, I, the thing is, I'd seen a lot of people wearing costumes. And this is before the cosplay thing had, had taken off in a big way. Sure like sure. it does now. Um, and so people would do costumes of varying qualities of, of uh, you know, excellence, shall we say. And um, I had never seen anybody do anything connected with 2001 at any of these conventions. Mm. Uh, I'd only been to a couple of them, but they, they tended to be more like Star Trek oriented because they were Star Trek conventions rather right. than just general sci-fi conventions. Uh, they hadn't really taken off in a big way yet at that point. Right. And so I thought you know, since 2001 was my favorite movie, it's like, well, I want to do like the ultimate costume for, you know, one of these conventions. And obviously the obvious, cho obvious choice was to make a spacesuit. Uh, but I had no clue how to go about doing it. I didn't really have any of those skills to, to construct or build anything. And back in those days, there was no internet, no videotape. So just right. getting reference photographs was extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, my suit is not 100% accurate, but it's not bad given, you know, what we had to do. But I had a couple of friends who were like very skilled artists, and they very graciously agreed to help me make this suit. And they ended up doing really all the work. Uh, and the, the suit was just made out of like flat illustration board, including the helmet, by the way, which wow. had to be molded into shape. Uh, again, we didn't have access to fiberglass molding techniques or the money to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We couldn't machine tool anything. Uh, so everything was basically handmade. Wow. And it, it turned out very, very well. And, and I, I had fun with it at the convention, and we took some pictures there. Uh, the picture that I posted is a, a more modern picture of me in the suit. And I okay. photoshopped it into the background of the 2001 uh, storage compartment room because I thought that looked right. really cool. Yeah, it did. But you would never be able to tell from the photo that it was so uh, homespun. Uh, I mean, it looks incredible. Yeah, it, it holds up pretty good in photos. Uh, you you notice some of the differences when you put side-by-side -side photos of the two suits. Yeah. You know, and when you see it in person, obviously you can tell, you know, what it's made out of. But it, it, it is really well done. And uh, the guy who did the most of the majority of the work on, like, the helmet and the packs, you know, there's, like, little emblems on those things. And he hand-painted all of them. Like, there was wow. a total of five emblems that had to be painted and or made. And, you know, again, we, we didn't have printing things available to us back in those days. And he just hand painted all of them. And again, it's, it's remarkable work. 
Um, so I'm just glad I still have this. It's like over 40 years old now and wow. I still have it. And, uh, I, if I any do, if I do any kind of, um, signing events or something like that, I'm, I'm thinking of bringing the suit along and putting it on display. Oh, so it'll get some attention. Yeah, you should, you should do that thing. Most definitely. Um, mm-hmm. that's really cool. I, yeah, if I were you, I would bring that to, uh, uh book signings. But, uh, speaking of the book, you know, uh, I want to point out that, uh, you dedicated it to the memory of Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke and talk about, uh, their enormous impact, which they'd had on your own artistic ambitions. Um, so can you tell us when and how you first became aware of these two visionaries? Sure. Uh, essentially, 2001 was like the epiphany in my life. Mm. And uh, I, I heard of 2001 when it first came out in 68. Um, I would have been 13 then at the time. And for some reason, I didn't get to see it then. I don't remember why. It, it did come around to my town, I think like maybe in the fall either the late summer or the fall of, of 68, or maybe it was even 69. But anyway, it did come around, and for some reason I didn't get to see it then. So I had kind of promptly forgotten about it uh, because there was no multimedia things like there are today to keep it in your consciousness. Um, so I just you know, more or less forgot about that movie. And, uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, um, when I was going to uh, high school, they had like a little bookstore in, in the library, where you could buy, you know, paperbacks and things like that. Mm. And uh, I remember I saw a copy of the novel there, uh, the one that has Cure Delay's face on the front of it. Right. And uh, I remember seeing that book and thinking, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about that movie. I never got to see it. And I opened up the book, and in the middle there was like an eight-page photo spread. And I remember being mm. blown away by those photos because yeah. everything looked absolutely real. Nothing looked like movie sets or, or movie costumes. Right, right. And uh, I was just totally blown away by the realism. And this was like at the height of, of NASA and things like that in America. So uh, seeing something like this just was like amazing to me. So I promptly bought the book. I read it immediately. This would have been in 1970. And uh, I loved the book. I, I didn't know really who Arthur C. Clarke was at that time. Uh, I was you know, only 15. I was just starting to get interested in in reading uh, you know, books and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I loved the book. I read it a couple of times. And then I determined that, you know, the next time that movie came around, um, right. I was going to okay. go see it. And again, this is the pre-video era. So movies just kind of played around in theaters and they would come back occasionally and things like that. Um, so I waited in in, uh, in the spring of uh, 71. It finally came around again and I went to see it um, at a at a local movie theater. And um, I was like, you know, totally blown away. I had no idea what to expect. And I was just totally, you know, blown away by it. And it was really, like I say, an epiphany for me. And um, I actually went back and saw it the next day, you know. I went right back sure. and saw it. I believe it was a weekend. And uh, so, you know, Sunday I went back and saw it one more time. And sure. and uh, I was hooked from that point on. It's like, uh, and it came back a few months later and I saw it a few more times. And, and then over the course of the next couple of years, it played around a couple of different theaters in the area, the Lehigh Valley area where I lived mm-hmm. and I would go and see it. And again, back then that's how you would see movies because they wouldn't necessarily show on television right away. And there was no home video market. Oh, so yeah. you no, would have I to know. hope that at, at some of these sub run houses, you know, second run houses, they would play movies over and over again. 
And uh, I remember following it over the course of like a couple of years where it kept playing all over the valley. And uh, I traveled with friends and we would just go see it again and again. Yeah. And uh, I became a big Kubrick fan. That was my first Kubrick movie. And uh, I remember going to the local library. Again, no internet. Uh, so I looked up uh, his name and I found some books on him. I think there was only one or two at that time. Yep. Because um, again, this would have been like 71. And, uh, and found out more about, you know, the films he had done and, uh, and saw some of them on TV when they showed on like regular free television. Mm-hmm. And uh, co- coincidentally, towards the end of that year, I, I discovered that, you know, he had a new movie coming out soon that was called Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. And um, that came out at the end of 71. And it came around my area in, um, in the spring of 72. And I had just turned 17 then, which at that time, that's how old you had to be to see an X-rated right. movie, which Clockwork right. Orange originally was. Right. So I went and saw that, saw that, you know, and of course I was blown away by that one as well. And I'd read, I'd read the book. I, I kind of got ahead of the curve on, on him finally. And uh, so I discovered that, you know, there was a novel that it had been based on. And so I, I became very quickly a, a big Kubrick fan and started fo- following his career saw, you know, as many of his older movies as I could when they showed on television and uh, read up, you know, articles that were in magazines about him uh, and his work because he was really becoming a big name at that point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and fortunately, you know, the media was covering him as best they could. So I just continued to follow him over the years and learn more about him. And, and in the 70s, more and more books would coming out about, you know, his films. And I, I bought a few of those as they came out. And, uh, you know, started my, my uh, Kubrick book collection, not realizing mm-hmm. someday I might be writing my own book on him. But uh, at that point, it was just fun to read about him and, and learn more. And I, I became a big fan of, of how he worked because I could tell even then that he was a very unique filmmaker. And mm-hmm. he did things in a very you know unique way that nobody else did. And so yes. I kind of latched on to yeah. that and said, this is a guy I want to I know more about. Yes, uh, I, I, I can relate to that in my own way that. That's basically, uh, <clears throat> like word for word, I could say that that was uh, kind of how I came to him. Everything you just said, I can relate to. That, mm-hmm. And I do, I, I am old enough to remember uh, the world you described when there was no internet. And uh, of course, when, uh, you know, there was no home video uh, of any kind. And uh, Right, yeah. I, yeah, I, I remember being a little kid and my dad saying, uh, oh, we're, this, this local theater... Uh, is showing uh, this Disney film, and we're we're going tonight. It's called Fantasia. I said, I don't want to go see a cartoon movie. I want to, you know, I wanted to see <laughs> an action movie. And it was one of those things that, like, it only came around like every seven or eight years. And I couldn't, right. you know, couldn't be more grateful because I, I remember that was a seminal event. You know, being in the theater and seeing Fantasia for the first time on a big screen and being blown away. And of course, I own a copy on Blu-ray uh, to this mm-hmm. day, but. So I can relate to that. Um, yeah. And, well, that was a know, that was a big film for me too. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it really was a big movie for me. Extraordinary film. I mean, real, really, just what else can you say? But a, a timeless work of art. And uh, you know, I absolutely. Relate to, I, I relate to going to the library and uh, trying to find books on the guy when there was no internet. There was just card catalogs and very few books available mm-hmm. in our local public library. And uh, also building your own little uh, Kubrick uh, library on your shelf, etc. But you know, you managed to 
uh, write your own book and, you know, to go one step beyond as if that weren't cool enough. I have to read this quote, you know, re relating to your latest book, Kubrick's Monolith, because it's from lead actor Kier Delea. Uh, he said, and I quote, Kubrick's monolith is the the most profound and best written analysis of 2001 A Space Odyssey I've come across since the movie was released in 1968. It's almost as if Joe Frenzy had resided for a time in director Stanley Kubrick's brain. Through this book, I learned more about the film that I was in than I ever knew from having been in it. Enjoy a fabulous read, end quote. Now, man, that is one hell of an endorsement. How did you manage to get this great quote for the book? Well, I was very fortunate. Um, I had been working on the book, and uh, actually I was getting to the point where I, I had run into so many difficulties getting it published, you know, finding a publisher who was interested or an agent who was willing to take me on that I had resolved that I was going to just self-publish my book, the 2001 book. And I'd done it before with the, the movies on my mind. That, that was a self-published book, which I basically had made to have a, as a kind of an expensive calling card to hand out to publishers and agents and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that was my resolve was I'm just, I was just going to self-publish it. And then coincidentally, right around that time, um, Cure Delay appeared at a film festival not too far from where I lived, about maybe a 45-minute drive. And uh, it was called the, the Black Bear Film Festival in okay. Milford, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And um, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine named Mike Gunkowski, who, uh, you know, he and I share a lot of things uh, about films and whatnot. He's, he's a big film buff, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, he told me about this film festival being there, and he says, Joe, do you want to go to it? Uh, I don't drive, so, you know, I had heard about this one, but I, I thought, well, that's too far to go. I, I don't have any way to get there, and I'm not going to ask anyone. But my friend Mike said, he goes, uh, I want to go to this because Cure Delay is going to be there, and uh, I'll be happy to drive, you know, all that way up there. And um, so I, uh, I agreed. I said, well, okay, yeah. if you want to do it, we can, we can do it. So we went to this thing, and it's very nice. Milford's a very nice town. And it, this was like in the fall, so the, you know, all the leaves had changed. It's a really beautiful uh, small town to be in. And uh, so we went there, and uh, Cure Delay uh, was the, uh, he was like the guest of honor. Uh, they were going to show one of his movies, uh, which was Bunny Lake is Missing. And um, mm -hmm. so I, had, I uh, brought a copy of my movies on my mind book. I thought, I'll, if I can see them, I'll give him a copy of it. And uh, anyway, he, he, uh, he was there, and uh, very friendly, very nice guy. Um, I had met him one time previously back in the eighties, actually. Uh, but you know, it, w it wasn't the kind of thing where I had a chance to have a conversation with him. He, he just did a one man performance piece. And, but anyway, so we, at this, uh, film festival, I, uh, got a chance to chat with him a little bit afterwards. They, they had a, a, a Q and a on the stage when they showed the movie. But then after the movie was over, uh, you know, some of the people that were there kind of congregated around him cause he was in the audience and he was very, you know, friendly and genial because everyone was kind of being cordial and friendly with him. There was no, you know, rush to uh, take up his time or anything like that. But everyone was just like, you know, wanted to say hi to him and that sort of thing. So I went up to him and I told him that, uh, you know, I had I had a book to give him, uh, Movies on My Mind, which my, was my film column book, and that I was uh, 
planning on self-publishing a book about 2001, and could I get an address from him so I could send him a copy when it came out? Mm-hmm. And he was very cordial, and he said, well, contact the guy who's moderating this thing, the, the, the film festival, and uh, I'll make sure he gets an address that you know, he can give to you. So uh, we planned on doing that, and then uh, what happened was uh, a few months went by, and um, I got the the publishing deal with McFarland for my 2001 book, which was very unexpected. But you know, I got it, so I thought, okay, I'm actually going to have a real publisher involved. And um, so I told I I uh, remember what I did. I sent Kier Delay a letter, I guess, telling him about that or something. But anyway, what happened was uh, when uh, I had signed the contract with uh, McFarlane, by that point, I actually had an email address for Cure Delay. Okay. And um, so what I did was I sent him an email telling him, like, I, I may have some good news about my 2001 book. And uh, once I signed the contract and, and it was a done deal, I felt bold enough to ask Cure uh, in an email, like, uh, could I send you the manuscript of my book and maybe get you to read it and with an eye towards like writing a small review or a forward or something like that for me? Mm, mm. And I thought he would say no because he didn't really know me and he didn't owe me anything. Right. Um, but instead he, he responded, he says, I'll be happy to. So I sent him a copy of the manuscript, which was the current one I had. I was in the process of expanding it for McFarland. Um, they wanted a much longer book than I had written at that time. And so, um, I sent a cure, a PDF of the manuscript. And, um, when he uh, responded, I was almost afraid to read it. It actually took him a while. It took him a while to get back to me. Um, mm. oh, the problem was initially he, uh, he didn't see the attachment. Like a month went by and when I contacted him to find out what was going on, he said he was still waiting for the, me to send the PDF. And I, told him I, I'd already attached it, so I, I attached it again, and that, that time he finally got it, and then okay, he responded yeah. right away then, and he told me he really liked the book a lot, and uh, and he wrote that nice review that you read, um, wow. which was, you know, amazing. Uh, I couldn't believe that, you know, the guy who starred in the movie had that nice of a thing to say about it, so yeah. uh, that was very, you know, I was very pleased with that, and, um, and like I say, he's a very, very nice guy. Uh, when I met him, he was, uh, about 79. I, I think he's like 81 now. Mm-hmm. Again, he made the movie 50 years ago when he was 30. Um, but he's a very friendly, cordial person. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping I get the opportunity to meet him again sometime and, uh, you know, maybe do something together to promote my book. You know, you started to write Kubrick's monolith, I believe in 2000, around the time you got your first computer, which uh, was just about a year after uh, the death of Stanley. Uh, and you described right. your work on the book uh, to have been 40 years in the making. Um, tell us how the process of writing Kubrick's monolith actually evolved over those 40 years. Um, as I told you before, you know, I, I, I was reading all the books on Kubrick that I could at that time, there weren't a whole lot out originally, and especially about 2001, there was really, you know, when I first started, there was only, or before I started the book, but when I first started reading about Kubrick, there was really only one book on 2001, and that was uh, Jerome Agel's book, mm-hmm. uh, The Making of Kubrick's 2001, which really was the Bible for many years right. about 2001, 
And I'm talking about the original edition, not the one that came out later that right. uh, Martin Scorsese edited, uh, which, you know, that eliminated all the photos and all the other stuff that the mm-hmm. original book had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know people, you know, who are real fans, that's like kind of a, a book they have to have if you want to talk about 2001. And I certainly got a lot of my initial information about the movie from that. Mm-hmm. So that, that fed into me wanting to write about, you know, 2001 at some point. And I had dreams of eventually doing a book, but I had no connections in the industry to get a book going. I was, I was still a fairly young person at that point. I was in my twenties and, um, I, uh, you know, I, I actually contacted a few people to see if anyone was interested in collaborating on a book. You know, I didn't get any real interest that way. And, um, then in like 94, I believe it was, um, Piers Bazzoni, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly there, wrote uh, a pretty good book on 2001 uh, called 2001 Filming the Future. And I got mm-hmm. a, I had a copy of that, and I really enjoyed that book. And, um, and then, of course, uh, 20 years later, he put out the, uh, the mammoth uh, up, upgrade, um, you know, $1,000 version of that book from Tashin. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, at, the time, but at, at the time that the 94 book came out, there really weren't that many books on 2001. And um, after reading, you know, Piers's book, I thought, you know, I, I really do want to write a, my own book on 2001. As much as I liked his, I, I thought, you know, there's more that could be said that I wanted to say about it. And then I started really thinking about it seriously. And then in 99, when Kubrick died, I said to myself, well, geez, I better get going with that book because, you know, the, the main guy just died. Mm. Um, and so I, I started getting serious and thinking about what kind of a book it was going to be. And I just sat down one day and, and kind of like wrote a, wrote an outline, you know, of like, you know, one chapter for this, a chapter for that, and basically listed all the things I wanted to read in a book about 2001. Mm. And that was sort of my goal was to write the book that I always wanted to read. So in my opinion, I, listen, I love, I love, love, the shining clockwork orange, full metal jacket. Like I said, even Barry Lyndon has some great merits. Yes. But the one thing that I have to always say is that if Stanley Kubrick had finished AI, artificial intelligence, that film would have been a masterpiece. First half of it, incredible. And then it got a little too cute and commercial, Spielberg, yeah, 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 obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not a bad film on its own merit, but wow, I could see his vision just by looking at the heavens. Well, you know, the introduction of your book, you write, you know, the intent of this book is to bridge the gap between intellectual analysis and fandom, which is a very clear description of your book. And, um, you know, 2001, the film is monumental in both ideas and execution. So opening a book on this topic can be, you know, quite intimidating to say the least. Can you expand on this for our listeners and tell us about your signature approach to this book? Because it does have Um, that. Well, thank you. Uh, I think what the, my intent was is that um, since I, I had been writing about film, at that point, and I had a certain style which people told me that I had a very inviting literary voice in the way I wrote about film. Uh, 
So I wanted to carry that over into the book on 2001, you know, for sure. And, you know, not to malign any other books about film that are out there. I didn't want to do something that was like overtly scholarly um, because a lot of that tends to be very mm -hmm. dry. And I didn't want to do that. And, and mm. you know, I did feel that 2001 was one of those movies that was extremely, you know, intellectual on the one hand. But on the other hand, it resonated with regular people, mm. uh, not just film scholars. So I wanted to be able to, to make sure my book covered both of those, you know, uh, sides to 2001. And so that's what that was my approach was uh, I'm, I'm writing this book, you know, with a lot of um, scholarly intent. But at the same time, I wanted it to be a very entertaining book. So that, that was those were like my twin goals in, in writing about it. And being a big fan that I was, that wasn't hard uh, to, to imbue it with a, a, a bit of my passion. And I hope it does come through. And, and so far, you know, from the reviews I've read and the comments I've heard from people that, you know, it does. Definitely. So, uh, so that was always my goal was, was to be a very um, reader friendly kind of a book, but at the same time, cover enough scholarly elements of it, you know, that would uh, that would appeal to that group of people as well. That's a very tricky thing to pull off, you know, both so uh, adeptly. And uh, I think you really did. Well, thanks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, speaking of thanks, you uh, yourself thank Kier and uh, Dan Richter in the intro for your book. Can I ask what were their contributions to it? Uh, sure. Uh, Dan's a very nice guy, by the way. He and I became Facebook friends, even though we don't communicate a lot. You know, we, we have liked each other's posts and, and have occasionally commented on things. But he's, a, he's an extremely friendly, nice guy. And uh, I had read his book, uh, Moonwatcher's Memoirs, years ago, mm -hmm. which uh, I used a lot of information from that when I was uh, writing my own book. Um, and uh, what happened was, in, in the case of Dan, uh, I had run into a couple of things that I had learned about 2001 that uh, I didn't have full information on. Um, and mm. so I, I contacted Dan to see if he could clear up a few details um, that I had uncovered that I didn't have uh, verification of. And he was, you know, kind enough to give me some information that way, um, you know, just through some email exchanges. Right. And um, and in the case of Kier, uh, it was really uh, the fact that he was so generous in, in writing that review for me. Um, that was really our only uh, interaction uh, regarding uh, 2001. And uh, I just, you know, felt it was necessary to at least mention his name uh, in that regard. And I, I also did mention in the, um, I think it's the preface of the book about, you know, first meeting him back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I have a small section of, of the preface there the, that uh, refers to our uh, first meeting. There's uh, another statement in uh, the intro about the film in, in which she said, fortunately, that it's, fortunately, 2001 is one of the few films that, fits comfortably in both these worlds, intellectual analysis and fandom. Perhaps that is also why it will endure. I think that's a really interesting assessment of the film itself. When did you personally realize uh, that 2001 Space Odyssey was able to bridge that gap and really stretch across both these levels of audiences? Um. 
I don't really know when that, that occurred to me because I was a fan of the movie from, you know, the very beginning, you know, the very first time I saw it. And, uh, and, you know, fortunately I had read the novel before I saw the movie, which I think did help me appreciate it more at the time. I mean, I knew there, there's differences between the book and the movie, but, you know, understanding some aspects of it, because I, I had no idea 2001 was going to be so radical when I saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, having the novel kind of in the back pocket of my mind, was very useful to me to, you know, I think, even appreciating the movie more than I would have, though I'm sure I would have liked it no matter what. And uh, so I was just a fan from day one. And I guess it wasn't until I was working on the book, uh, which I wrote between 2000 and 2005. That's when I actually wrote the, ma- the original manuscript mm. before I um, you know, did the, the expansion and stuff. So I, I don't I don't think it was until I was actually working on you know writing like a preface or an introduction whatever that you know it occurred to me that the the movie did cover both aspects of uh, appreciation meaning you know the the analytical and the fandom side mm-hmm. uh, which my book was going to be doing so I guess it wasn't really I I couldn't have put that into words until I actually was writing the book um, so that it didn't occur to me as a conscious thought probably until then. Right, right. Um, well, you know, 2001 is a film that I I feel, and I'm sure I speak for many, many, many Stanley Kubrick fans uh, when I say we feel. Uh, it's a film that transcends words in terms of trying to discuss the meaning or the form. Um, were you all at all intimidated by just the subject itself? Uh, while you were digging in and really trying to write the book? No, because I was such a fan of the movie. Hmm. Like I say, this is something that, that was many years in, in the thinking, you know, that wanting to do a book on 2001. So I didn't feel any intimidation at all about writing about it. Um, I just approached it as a fan, like initially. And yeah. it's it's funny, it's not until you really deconstruct the movie that you learn so much more. Uh, I mean, I'd seen the movie a bunch of times. I actually saw it, um, I think, about 30 times in a the theater. Wow. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't until I was really deconstructing it for the book um, and, and watching it over and over again on video that uh, I was picking up so much more. I mean, this is a film I thought I knew everything about, and it wasn't until I was actually writing the book and exploring it and deconstructing the film in detail that I realized there was so much more going on than I had even realized. And I'm not talking just about the intellectual side of the movie, just even Mm -hmm. some nuts and bolts Mm -hmm. things, uh, stuff I hadn't really picked up on, uh, in a, in a complete way. I I was picking up on much more in, uh, in rewatching it and rethinking it. Mm. So I would recommend that for almost anybody. Like, uh, you know, if you really like a movie a lot, try deconstructing it sometime because I think you'll learn a lot more. It's 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 funny, but I always see his uh, films themselves as reflections of, as a term I've used before on the show is like you know his highly compartmentalized mind, and that's something I've always been drawn to Stanley, you know, about very much, is that I, I'm really drawn to those rare people who have that ability to uh, cross-reference and as, as I call it, you know, gear shift constantly shifting gears there's nothing add about it it's just a very mm-hmm. high functioning mind and uh his films reflect his mind in the sense that you know you, you can deconstruct them and take them apart 
piece by piece and were you to try and reassemble them back together in any other way but the way that he placed them piece by piece it wouldn't make sense it you know it's 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 kind right. of hard to explain but um i mean i just think that your book is a really thoughtful very modern day retrospective of you know a 50 year old movie at this point and your book is as worthy a companion uh, to the film itself as any out there. I mean, it ranks with the greatest, man. I'm not just saying that. Um, oh, it's got nine. So it's it's the truth, Joe. It was in nine chapters. I mean, on separate and well defined areas. Um, all of our listeners should definitely check out Joe's book. I mean, each chapter contains really interesting information. Um, so I want to ask how you broke it down. What were your uh, choices in, uh, well, deconstructing into those uh, nine chapters? Um, I don't remember specifically why I came up with the, the different chapters the way I did. Other than that, I, I definitely had certain things I wanted to talk about. Um, I wanted to like introduce the book in a specific way that made you realize who was involved in the making of it, meaning you know Kubrick and Clark. And mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about the the uh, the creation of the script in uh, in its intellectual capacity and even its emotional capacity for that matter. Uh, so at a certain point, it, it became obvious what the the chronology of the book was going to be. That I was going to cover the you know the beginning of Kubrick and Clark meeting, and then the formulation of the script, and then mm -hmm. the you know the hiring of the special effects people on down the line. You know through each aspect of the making of the, the film, mm -hmm. uh, you know, concluding with, um, I guess, as far as the, the making of the film, concluding with like the music. And then after that, it was going to be about, well, you know, what was the reaction uh, by the, the public and by the, the industry itself. And, um, and that's, that's sort of how the book flowed. And then when I uh, hooked up with McFarlane and they, they wanted the book to be longer, I, uh, I came up with two new chapters that I hadn't had before in there. Uh, one of them was about what it was like to watch the movie. I wanted to take you through the entire experience of watching the film, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. which I didn't have that in the, in the original, uh, you know, version of the book. And then the, the last chapter, which is actually an afterward chapter, uh, which is about Stanley Kubrick's legacy. Mm. Um, so those were like the two new ones. And I just simply, you know, padded and bulked out the rest of the chapters that needed it. Because, uh, in fact, I, I look at the book now and I, I keep thinking, oh, God, why didn't I add this? Why didn't I add that? You know, because it could be it could be endless. You know, you could go on yeah. the rest of your life with that. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out. But that's sort of how the the uh, chronology of the book you know took place. And uh, a friend of mine who read it, I remember her really enjoying that aspect of the book. She told me how one chapter seemed to flow into the next in a, in a very progressive manner. Yes. That was uh, she thought was just right, and so that was nice to know that that someone you know had picked up on that. Well, it's uh, a, a, perhaps a silly question to ask. It's like asking which is your favorite child. But did you uh, have a chapter that you enjoyed working on the most? And if so, can you know just tell our listeners a a, a few interesting facts from that chapter? Okay, I'll see what I can do. Uh, it, it is it is a hard question because uh, you know, like you say, wh who is your favorite child? Um, you know, even though I don't have kids, I still understand that that you know sort of you know, question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it it is difficult to say. I I like the chapter about um, 
It's called The Art of Monoliths, and, uh, which goes into the symbolic meaning of the, of the film. Uh, I think that's a, a good chapter as far as getting across certain points I wanted to. Uh, without you know being overly dry about it, like I say, you can get very dry when you get academic sometimes. Uh, so I do like that one. And um, ironically, one chapter I was never really sure I, I would I was happy with is the one about watching the movie. Um, I, I took me a long time to be satisfied with that chapter when I was writing it, um, but after the fact, it's it's actually one of my favorite chapters now to reread. That's that's really cool. So, yeah, so those two stand out the most, I would say. And uh, I also like the, uh, the the photo diary chapter at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. When I went to New York back in the in, in 2000, um, that was originally going to be the beginning of the book, but the, the publisher thought it would be better as an appendix uh, chapter at the end. And I, you know, I was fine with that. But uh, I thought that, made, that chapter made my book somewhat unique, that nobody else had done something like that. And, um, you know, look, the, the man himself seems to have only grown in stature uh, since his passing in 1999. And his films are just more and more popular today uh, than they were in his lifetime. Now, given that you were uh, an early disciple, pupil, student uh, of... Uh, the cinema and uh, digging into them back in the day. Would you agree with that? That his, his uh, pretty stature, much. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's. I think he's become more popular now than when he was alive. I mean, I think his films always resonated. You know, even during his lifetime. True. true. Uh, you know, they didn't always. They didn't always. Uh, you know, break the box office the, the week they came out. But they've, they've always uh, maintained their stature, I think. Uh, but clearly, once he passed away, and uh, a lot of the people around him no longer felt reserved about talking about him, which I think they felt while he was alive, I think that's changed. Um, you know, that, that's made him more popular than when he was alive, which is very ironic, I think, you know, because he clearly wanted to be a success as a filmmaker, but he kind of shied away from doing interviews and whatnot. And... Um, so, uh, so certainly he's become a bigger name since he passed away. And mm-hmm. part of that's also due to the internet and the fact that there's these sites like, you know, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and the other ones that are out there that didn't exist when he was alive in, in, in many cases. Right. Because uh, the internet was still fairly, uh, you know, in its early stages then. Um, but yes, I'm so happy that he is finally getting the recognition worldwide, you know, and amongst so many other people that didn't exist before. Um, and there was really no outlet for people like me to communicate with other Kubrick fans, uh, until these sites appeared. And, uh, that's why I'm happy to be a, you know, a member of, of a number of them. So I can, even if I don't comment, at least I can hear what other people are saying and thinking and, yeah, uh, and no. seeing what their posts are. I mean, uh, it's great that you've been a member of Stanley Kubrick appreciation society for almost four years now, I believe. And, uh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned us in your book. I mean, can't thank you enough for that, Joe. Um, well, I was happy to. <laughs> no, it's 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 really you know appreciated. We uh, we just love being at the uh, vanguard, you know, so to speak, like with the fan interaction and uh, the worldwide 
base of enthusiasts, you know, the Sta all the Stanley Kubrick enthusiasts of the world have, uh, you know, several places to go. And we're really grateful that, you know, SCAS seems to be, you know, ever growing is like one of the go-to places. And um, yeah, well, you're one of the we, biggest sites out there, I believe. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we have a lot of fun and we take it very seriously. Um, I can speak on behalf of uh, Stephen and uh, Nick Fugazi and, uh, you know, several other people who are involved and just all the members that, you know, we get to interact with who are so engaged. And, um, you know, your contributions are uh, are always great. And uh, I uh, always, you know, I have a star next to you, so I get notified if you're posting something. You know, I love to check in uh, with everybody and uh not the least of which yourself were you were you surprised at all to see the you know constant dialogue and the intrigue uh relating to 2001 which still i mean it still exists today and you know it can easily be seen in stanley kubrick appreciation society on a daily basis did it did it surprise you to see like the the constant growth of uh you know people wanting to discuss it etc I don't know if it's so much surprising, but it's certainly, uh, you know, an appreciative thing uh, because it's such a, an important movie in my life. Uh, and and now that I have a book out, obviously I, I want it to sell. So the more people talk about the movie, the better the chance that they might purchase my book. But it, it's really nice to see, uh, and it's, it's rewarding as well, to see so many people interested in 2001. Because when I was growing up, you know, at the height that the movie came out, um, I felt very alone. Uh, I mean, I had a few friends that liked the movie, but the the mm -hmm. wider expanse of of uh, people I interacted with in high school and and, and elsewhere, uh, you know, weren't interested in the movie mm -hmm. or didn't know about it or whatever. You know, uh, I had a few close friends, and the rest were just you know everybody else who you know were just going about their lives and couldn't care less about you know Stanley Kubrick or 2001 or any of his movies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice to have access to a group that is so committed to you know, 2001 and Stanley Kubrick. Well, thanks, man. Again, you know, like it's, uh, it's, it's an honor to have, uh, you in the group and, uh, your contributions. I know that the, the spacesuit posts, you know, from last week that really, uh, popped a lot of eyeballs. I, you know, I thought it was just too bleeping cool. And I mean, that's just dedication. That's not even fanboy stuff. That's just real hardcore, <laughs> old school, first gen. Well, I, I was quite obsessed when I was young, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we we all can relate to it in, uh, uh, you know, our our own ways. I mean, we how we all came to Kubrick, you know, or how he became intertwined with our own personal stories is something that every diehard fan, I'm sure, has a, a, a tale to tell uh regarding that and uh you know being a part of stanley kubrick appreciation society is just uh, uh a treat and uh an honor frankly for me and uh you know it's it's all thanks to uh steven for creating it you know uh, over six years ago and uh it's grown and um and, and, you know, but in, in a very organic way, you know, we're not about just adding members mm -hmm. just to uh, uh, beef up the numbers. We really uh, like to see people answer the two simple questions. 
to become a member. And uh, from there, it's just a, a, a joyride. Um, now, there's one other thing uh, before I get to my last uh, question, which is uh, it seems that you are uh, the person who is responsible for having discovered the connection between the oil painting used in Kierdele's bedroom at the end of 2001 and the fact that that same painting is used in the James Bond film of You to a Kill. Am I wrong? Right. You, you, you made that. No, I, 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 I first posted that. Um, I think I contacted Stephen, or maybe it was you. I don't remember which, but I contacted the, you know, Santa Cooper Appreciation Society, one of you, one of you members, uh, about, you know, getting some fr frame grabs of those two, from those two movies. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying like, you know, I, I gave them the, the, the time count on, you know, what part of the movie those images showed up. And I said, is there anybody that can do some frame grabs of those? Cause right. I don't, I, I don't know how to do that. It was uh, I'm sure it's something I can, it was, it was Steven. I'm okay. Sure so it was thanks to Steven that I got the frame grabs. I mean, I, I'd watched the movie. I had just gotten the box set of uh view to a kill or the, the James Bond series. And I was watching the, the one, the one movie view to a kill. And like, suddenly, you know, there was, I just saw the painting and recognized it. And I'd seen that movie maybe like, I don't know, six or seven times right, right, prior to right. that, the, the James Bond film. And I'd never noticed it before, but suddenly there it was. And it's like, oh my God, that's, that's the painting that's in the bedroom wow. at the end of 2001. And uh, so that's when I reached out to try to get some frame grabs of it. And, and uh, Stephen did that. And then I, I put together a little kind of promo ad about it, you know, a little meme thing, whatever. Um, and, and then uh, posted that on my own page. And I guess it got around a little bit, but uh, that was just a, a, a fortuitous thing. Uh, I just happened to be watching the movie and I just happened to notice it. Uh, and it's weird, like how you can see something a bunch of times and not notice an element in it. And then one day you just notice it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, it happens a lot for me. <laughs> well, it, you know, fortuitous also that you had the eye to catch that because I w I've seen you to a kill probably as many times like you know i don't know anywhere between half a dozen a dozen times uh i was an 80s teen so i you know part of the whole vcr movement and um loved watching bond movies again and again um right but i i, yeah, I, I saw not, it in the theater too not, <laughs> yeah me too me too but i would definitely not have had the eye to pick up on that and and yet i can relate i mean the, the, the fact that you connected that painting to both pictures is really remarkable, but I can relate to your point about having, uh, you know, let's say you see something X number of times and then you have the realization that, oh my gosh, I never saw that before. So mine was The Shining when I, when, you know, was a kid, I was just kind of hypnotized by the film. I didn't know if I understood it, et cetera. I've mentioned this before, but, um, it was in my late teens or early 20s after I'd already seen it, you know, I don't know, 100 times, maybe 200 at that point. No exaggeration. Um, and, and I realized, I realized, well, if I was like, oh, my gosh, if you take Grady out of the scene, you can see that Nicholson is always talking to himself in the mirror. And that's, you know, one of those things, you know, I was about 18, 19 at the time. And I was like thinking, OK, that's why I'm so you know, enamored of this filmmaker and the, 
the fact that he could make that scene, you know, and set the camera angle up from every position so that, you know, Grady is always stationed between Jack and the mirror. You remove him from the scene since he's not really there anyway. He's a ghost. And Jack's mm-hmm. saying to himself, I know you. You killed your wife and family. And the, the other yeah. scene, when, when, when Danny's at the kitchen table with Scatman Crothers, and, he sa- and the moment he, they, he cuts to him asking, is there something bad in this place, is the moment we see all the kitchen knives uh, magnetized. Right, yeah, I remember, I remember catching that one. Yeah, and I mean, I saw the movie a hundred times before I was like, oh, wait, oh, mm-hmm. snap, oh, my God. And that was like when I was like, yeah, that's why that's why it's Stanley for me. And nobody else really, um, you know, has the, uh, I, you know, I don't know. There, there's many other directors I admire, but it's, you know, it's it's kind of like the Beatles. There's the Beatles and then there's everyone else. There's Kubrick and then there's everyone else. Um, right. Yeah, I feel just, I feel a lot the same way. Yes. <laughs> loved your uh, recent post with the uh, you posted Deadpool. The the, the 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 superhero and Deadpool Frank Pool mm-hmm. comic versus cosmic and they're both great. You shared that to Scass recently. That was a big hit. I loved it. Yeah, I lo- I love Deadpool the movie and uh, and in fact I I think the not to get off point here or anything like that but the the opening song in in Deadpool with the with the opening credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is Juice Newton's uh, Angel in the Morning, whatever. Yeah, yep. I think that's as radical a use of music as Kubrick using the Blue Danube, you know, for space flight. Interesting. You know, I, I have to say, I can't think of anything else that's that radical. Um, that that seems so inappropriate on the one hand, but was so perfect, yeah, you know, on yeah. the other hand. Um, and I just rewatched, you know, Deadpool recently. I, I, I really enjoy that movie. I think it's so funny. Um but um, but anyway, yeah, I I I agree with you that Kubrick is uh, more or less uh, a unique uh, filmmaker. You know, there's him, and then there's basically everyone else. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 everything about the guy. You know, no film school, going to uh, you know the cinema to absorb everything when he was a kid, and just coming out of certain sci-fi B-movies thinking, well, if I could get my hands on a camera and some sound equipment, I can't possibly make a film worse than that. I mean, <laughs> I love that stuff. Right. You know, I mean, that's that's where you get to point at that rare human like that and say, yeah, there's him and then there's everybody else. So, I mean, we all have our own little answer uh, to this question, I suppose, and there's no right answer. And uh, myriad ways... Uh, one can answer the question, but uh, my last one for you, Joe, is uh, very simply, who is Stanley Kubrick? Well, I think it's it's similar to what we said. I mean, he, he's unique. He was an innovator. And he was obviously very self-assured in what he was doing. Uh, you know, the, they bandy the word, uh, you know, genius around a lot. And I don't know if he was a genius or not. He he always denied that, but he clearly thought in ways that other people didn't. And, uh, you know, he never uh, did things the traditional way. Mm. So I think that, that really, you know, explains why his work is uh, enduring uh, to this day, because every film he's done has been unique and innovative 
in one way or another, you know, all the way up to the end. Mm. And I think, you know, when he, when he started out, you know, he, he well, he did a, a, you know, day of the fight and he did some other, uh, uh, short documentaries, but once he got into features, I mean, his first one, he went for like some art house kind of thing and that didn't work too well. So then he decided, okay, I have to do more, you know, traditional noirish kind of film. So he did a couple of those, uh, basically to get his foot in the door. I think, you know, he was always mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, how can I, progress as as a filmmaker and and become a success so he followed a certain formula that he decided on like Mm -hmm. i'm going to do this and i'm going to do this and then you know he he kept working his way up the line until he he basically had total control of of every aspect of his filmmaking i mean he did he did the spartacus thing i think really just to you know he needed a paycheck probably at that point in his life and he also needed to have a, a big budget film under his belt that he could say hey i can do it you know, mm-hmm. just to let the, the, the world know out there that, you know, he was a player. Uh, so everything he did, you know, had a certain calculation to it by, by you know, any means. And uh, it was all to further his career uh, because obviously this is what he wanted to do. He, he was interested in photography as a young man, and that just kind of blossomed into filmmaking. And, uh, but, you know, all of his films were just so unique. Um, any film he did... Um, Going back to the beginning, I think uh, has a certain something about it that no no one else was able to do. Absolutely. And uh, you know, I, I love all of his movies. I think they're all great. I'm, I've been a, a huge fan of him for like so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, 2001 is my favorite because I wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like them all, and and uh, I, I'm so happy that he's finally being recognized as a uh, as a great filmmaker because even though he had his fans and, and supporters when he was alive, um, really it wasn't until he passed away that uh, things really took off for him as a personality. You know, he, he's as famous, I think, today as like Hitchcock was yeah. in his lifetime. Yeah. And um, and that's like, just again, for, for someone like me, that that's so rewarding to know that uh, he will be remembered. And, uh, and thanks to, you know, organizations like yours and some of the other ones that are out there, you're, you're, you're helping to keep this name alive uh, with the public. And that's, that's, I think a great thing. Thanks, man. I mean, we love doing it. It's, it's, it's all for, you know, for him. I mean, he obviously touched so many people in so many uh, unique and personal ways. And yet there's a universality to uh, our connection uh, to him through his work and his life. And yeah, it's just a, 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 a thrill and an honor, like I said before, to uh, be uh, another torchbearer and keep the uh, flame alive of his legacy. I love that we get to the chance to, you know, answer questions for, uh, you know, newer fans. There's uh, uh, some people who join the group and they're young film students and uh, they're writing a paper and such, and uh, they can turn to us for, as a resource for for help. And uh, I personally think that's really cool. Um, I'm not old, but I'm not a youngin anymore. So I, you know, I kind of walk that mm-hmm. line between wanting to help them out and uh, you know uh, enjoying that same uh, s- that that same form of uh, newfound enthusiasm because it keeps mine uh refreshed all the time and uh anyway yeah i mean just too cool of you to join us i can't thank you enough 
Um, it's been oh, my pleasure. I, I really enjoyed discussing it with you. Well, I want everybody, everybody that's listening to pick up Joe's book, Kubrick's Monolith 2017. Stephen is going to mention it again and the available outlets uh, in his outro. Um, so with that, I just uh, want to thank you again. It's been awesome. You've been a great guest, man, really. Um, just, yeah, too cool. Thanks for being on Kubrick's uh, Universe, Joe. Oh, my pleasure, as always. <laughs> Thanks, Joe and Jason. We spoke to Joe on the 12th of March, 2018. Joe's book is called Kubrick's Monolith, The Art and Mystery of 2001, A Space Odyssey, and is available online at McFarland's website or on Amazon. Of course, why not go and watch 2001, A Space Odyssey? Give yourself a little treat. Thanks to Anthony from Coldwell for telling us who is Stanley Kubrick? And of course, thanks to our marvellous host, Jason Furlong. If you want any more info about this episode, check out the show notes on your podcast player or search Kubrick's Universe online. Thanks to James and Jason and myself for keeping the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook running smoothly. I'm now going to leave you with a great piece of music called 2001 from the Cecil Holmes Soulful Sound. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Kubrick's Universe, and thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Rigg. Tatty bye.
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast.